1: And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. What do we have up for today, Alex? Well, Taylor,
0: today we have a very interesting episode all about Obama. And our special guest this time is Mike Reitzes. He uh, is a political staffer. He's worked on a number of campaigns. And one of the most interesting things he's done is a comprehensive study of President Obama's, well, then-candidate Obama's speech during the 2008 campaign and really looked at all the ways that President Obama used different framing, used different pieces of language to persuade or influence or just message to voters. And through his comprehensive study, he was able to piece together the most common themes that he used in the different contexts that he used them. So if he was going to a swing state, was he using different language than if he was going to a solidly democratic state? Was he using more divisive language? Or was he speaking to higher ideologies, more common theoretical themes? And so I want to welcome to the show Mike Reitzes. How are you?
2: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me.
0: Good.
1: Welcome, Mike.
2: Thank you.
0: So do you want to start off by giving us a little bit of an overview? I know I previewed it for our guests, but um, tell us in your own words exactly what was this study about and what did you learn?
2: Yeah, so I think, um, I think the let me talk about kind of the methodology that we used, because I think that was really some of the special thing that was part of this study. So what we did was we had a computer content analysis of all the speeches and debates and forums that Obama did throughout 2007 and 2008. So this was 183 total speeches and debates. And what we did was we used uh, computer software to separate all the distinct words that Obama used. It was over 11,000. What we did was try to come up with the frames that we thought he was using, both in terms of the policy, thematic, morality, and then kind of the factitious appeals and then go back and look at it within the software, we could tell whether or not it was used accurately within the context. So really what we thought was special about this was most of the studies in campaign rhetoric really just looks at one speech. or They don't use the entire universe like what we did, but we did this, and they're also usually qualitative. So we were quantitatively able to say everything that he talked about. And basically, some of the key findings that we found was the vast majority of the appeals that Obama used were policy appeals, followed by, so that's like talking about the economy, security, that type of thing. And then the next most common thing were the thematic appeals. And these were things like hope and change, establishment, partisanship, and unity. And so we were really able to dive into everything he said in the frames that he used.
0: And so this is just a fascinating study, too. This is something that I really don't think that we've ever seen. We've seen a lot of studies out there, right, that go and um, and, and piece take little pieces in, in tiny frames, which you really did, you know, something very comprehensive and really crunched the numbers of every single word that he spoke during both the primary and the, the actual general election. Right. Exactly so now i see in here that you have those four frames that you just mentioned policy appeals thematic appeals morality appeals and uh factious appeals uh i want to just for our listeners so that they have more context because a lot of our discussion is probably going to be centered around these four themes what exactly goes into each one of these
2: yeah so policy appeals would be every time uh obama talked about the economy the security, education, healthcare, and the environment. So, anytime we found a word that we thought matched with that, we used that as part of that frame. When it came to thematic appeals, the main ones were things that had to do with change, hope, establishment. Establishment, partisanship, or unity. So, like if we were studying change, we'd use explicitly when he said the word change, but we'd use other forms, we'd use other words too that were similar. So, if he was talking about reforming things, that would fall under the category of change. Morality appeals, what we were looking at were kind of when he talked about values, religion, references to patriotism and family. And then the last one was factitious appeals. And these were really more like the wedge type issues. This was when he's talking about things like abortion, immigration, LGBT rights, and race. And so what did you guys find? So what we found overwhelmingly was that policy appeals were used, which was pretty interesting because I think a lot of the... Opponents of Obama thought he was mainly talking about thematic stuff and kind of talking in the platitudes. But we found overwhelmingly that the policy appeals were used. And then the next most common was thematic followed by the morality appeals. And then lastly were the factitious appeals. So, and that that we found really interesting because I think a lot of times media is drawn to conflict and kind of these wedge issues. But really when we looked at what Obama was saying on his stump speeches, it was almost never talked about. And it was very rare compared to the other ones.
1: And so why do you think that he had so many policy appeals which is actually 15 times as many and why is it that he was then downplaying those factitious appeals what what would you say is the big difference when you classified them between a policy appeal and a factitious appeal and then why do we see you know such a such a difference about it because let's say he's talking about the environment i mean that has to be an issue right like what makes a factitious appeal different from a policy appeal like the environment, in in that way.
2: Yeah, I think I think a lot of this really comes down to who Obama was and what he was comfortable talking about. I think who he was was really a policy wonk. I think what he enjoyed talking about most was talking about the issues, talking about health care, and kind of there was a strategic effort. Was this is what people want to hear about. And this was what he wanted to talk to them about. And they were less drawn to some of the factitious appeals. They didn't want to talk as much about abortion and other things. And I think another element kind of what I talked about earlier about the media was that I think if they talked about some of these wedge issues that got play and didn't need to get a whole lot of references in a speech because the few references they made could get the type of coverage that they wanted out of them.
0: So now the, the study here, It really just concludes, like you said, that uh, a rather counterintuitive point that Obama spent more time talking about policy than he did about sort of thematic appeals. But I I would argue from reading your paper that if you remove the economy and I think you guys explicitly say that if you remove the economy from the policy appeals, then thematic uh, the thematic was the the next most. It, It would have overtaken it. And I would chalk that up to the fact that, you know, where we were in 2008, where where um, you know, the, the, the economy is careening off a cliff and he is forced to he has to spend a lot of time talking about the economy if he was running the campaign that he wanted to run. I would say maybe he would spend more time talking about the thematic appeals. And and that kind of bears out in your data too, right? Is that when things were going better for his campaign, he was able to, to pivot to the campaign that he wanted to run.
2: Yeah, I think that's a good point, Alex, that I think throughout 2007 and 2008, there were these external factors of going through an economic crisis. And the financial markets were falling apart and he was having to go deeply into that. And I think the thematics appeals were strong. And I think really what we'd have to do is they need to be more studies like these to where we could actually have a point of reference to see if this really was a lot more thematic appeals um, and how much more of that was being done. But I think for this study, I think you hit it right on the head there.
0: And I wonder maybe what was 2012?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that would be fascinating to look at, um, Absolutely.
0: So get into a little bit about, I, I, I know I previewed it a little bit, but how how did uh, President Obama's or candidate Obama's poll standing impact the types of messaging and rhetoric that he used?
2: Yeah, it was very interesting to look at um, in both the general election and the primary election. When he was gaining, he was using more of these thematic appeals. And this was something we looked at. We looked at the polling data But then we also looked at in the general election when he was gaining, he talked way less about factitious appeals. And I think that also coincides a lot with the market crash and focusing more on the economy. But kind of those were the significant statistical findings that we found.
1: So when we think about Obama and his campaign slogan, you know, and his campaign slogan is change you can believe in, which is just a a brilliant thematic slogan in, in so many ways. You know, it has that component there of change. It has that component there of of belief, right, that you're going to be believing within Obama, which some people would say the belief part was the big part of it, right? The change was, yes, also also important, but it was, you know, having them actually, uh, actually believe that. Um, when Obama voters heard that word, change, OK, what do you what do you think that they that he meant by that or they interpreted, you know, that to be what what was it that that uh, broadened out inside of their own inside of their minds?
2: Yeah, I think. And this goes back, if you can let me go back to a little bit of a context, but I reading about the Obama campaign back in 2006 when they were con- when David Axelrod was working on a memo when Obama was contemplating running. He, he laid out that there that change and hope were going to be the key things that he talked about and the ways to bring about his message. And kind of the way that change you be, can believe in was, I think, really a way to attack Hillary Clinton in the beginning. They didn't want to attack, like in Iowa, negative politics plays badly, but they were way behind in the polls, so they needed to make sharp distinctions, and I think by do- they wanted to do that by not explicitly attacking their opponents, but I think using a phrase like change you can believe in was a way that they could attack her without saying her name and really fight her as she was also trying to present herself as a change agent.
1: So it was that way of saying that you really can't believe in her. Was that the subtext? Absolutely. I think that's what it was that she was claiming that she was this change agent and they were saying that's not really true. Oh wow, okay, there, you know that's that's brilliant. And you know, I guess one of the things that that comes up when we talk about stuff like this is how much of this was planned, how much of it was scripted, how much of it was, um, you know, put into the minds of people because um, as has been also the, that people have said this about Donald Trump, you know, they also said with Obama that he was using hypnosis, he was using uh, neurolinguistics, he was using these various different techniques to be able to influence the mind of voters. And I think one of the things about Obama is that he can actually uh, deliver a speech and sound pretty authentic as he's as he's doing it. But do you think that he was he's better when he's when he's scripted when he's off script? How much of that was planned and? Um, You know, based on, you know, even as you all were were analyzing these, uh, the words that that occurred within the speeches was do you think that this was a planned thing? Was it kind of like, okay, well, he's got his group of people who have decided this is what he he should hit on? Or is this more just Obama being Obama?
2: Yeah, I think absolutely he was better when he was doing his planned speeches. I think that he was a gifted orator and he was also a gifted author and kind of that was how he came on the scene. So I think what he did best and what he enjoyed doing best was having prepared speech where he kind of gave his input about what he was saying and then could perform it in a way that worked. So I think unquestionably the scripted areas were what he did best. I think yeah. the unscripted areas were mostly the debates which he at times he did very well but there are also times when that was his big struggle i think when you look back about the early debates with hillary clinton Those were not as soaring as his stump speeches. And then, if you go back in 2012, like the down point on the campaign was kind of his lackluster performance in the first debate. In the first debate with Mitt Romney. I remember that day. (laughs) I think we all do. It it was pretty easy sailing. And then all of a sudden, we are like, oh no, we might lose this. What was it? Like Axelrod got on the phone the next day to apologize to us or something. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That was our, our state director in Ohio. He was in, Obama was in Ohio. Ohio shortly after that and our state director talked to him and he was like apologize to all the guys on the field out there I'm doing our best for us not to win this right now so I'm going (laughs) to need you guys so um, I I think the unscripted areas were the areas where sometimes were a problem for Obama
1: did he stay on message though like do you think that when he was unscripted that he was hitting a lot of the same The same types of appeals as what you found, meaning, you know, policy first, then, you know, thematic. And did did he, did he tend to stay in that way? Or was he going more into uh, the, you know, some of the other things like the factitious appeals?
2: The one thing in the debate which he talked about a lot more than in his speeches were the factitious appeals. Right. And so that, that was kind of the most significant finding we found in the difference between the debate and the speeches. And I think this goes back to what I talked about earlier, where I think this when the media was in more control of what was being discussed, they would talk more about they're drawn the conflict and kind of that was what he had to talk about. And he couldn't talk about kind of the soaring um unity themes and the thematic appeals that he wanted to be talking about. And I talked and was forced to talk about some of the issues he was less likely to talk about in a speech.
0: That's that's really interesting. That's an interesting point because it really goes to illustrate that give and take and the power of the media in that it's not necessarily, you know, all one-sided of the candidates getting up and talking and talking and talking. It's the media and the media's ability to force the candidates to talk about the things that the media wants to talk about. and I sort of wonder looking back at 2016, how much you know there was the Trump campaign forcing the media to force Hillary Clinton to talk about the email scandal and how that little loop mm-hmm. happened. Um, she would come out and give these great speeches and point out major problems in the Trump campaign and then afterward she would get questioned about the emails.
1: Yeah it's like in some ways like the media is actually encouraging that divisiveness encouraging that having you know each candidate fight so that people can say well this is the side you're on you either like this candidate or that candidate it's kind of a way of narrowing down the the field but it it also encourages this sense of fighting you know that happens between candidates, where um, you know it'd be interesting to kind of compare that with the the general you know downturn of uh, politically correct or just nice you know speech and in, 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 in politics that has just you know gone down so much over you know over the last however many years.
2: I think absolutely. I think the other thing with Hillary's speeches is hers were. I think Alex would remember attending them is she'd be mostly be talking about policies. That's what she'd like. But then there'd be like a paragraph of her going after Trump and that would be what would lead in the news later that day. So Mm -hmm. I think for the most she was battling, she was facing that battle very hardly in 2016.
0: Right. She couldn't get out the whole campaign from the primaries in, in 2015 to the general election in 2016 she was never really able to define herself before other people were able to define her. She wasn't also able to define her opponents. That they were, like, Bernie, Bernie Sanders was able to define her because she was too hesitant to attack him in the in the beginning and to try and defi- define him in sort of the public and media's eyes. And Donald Trump had already defined himself long before anybody could say anything because a lot of people were happy that he was defining himself as a divisive, um, shake things up candidate. And then after the primaries, he was able to define Hillary Clinton and build on everything that, that Bernie Sanders had, had created.
2: I mean, I, I would, and I'll throw this question back to you and to Taylor and Alex, what would be the dominant thematic appeals from Hillary? I think with Obama, it was pretty clear as hope and change. I don't even know what the two or three things I would come up with for her was.
0: Yeah, that's a good
2: throw <laughs> 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 so, so stumper that's, question at you guys. Well, it cool.
0: changed. Okay. It changed so frequently, and she uh Oh and then finally settled on stronger together. Like what, is that even, we, yeah, how, what is does that even? Yeah, which is extremely vague. <laughs> but what does hope and change mean? Still, a future we can believe in. Like, what does that mean?
2: I think you can associate it with more things concretely, even though it is vague. Like, uh, I would argue that like hope and change is making things different, changing healthcare, changing the economy. I don't really know what stronger together is. Right. Yeah, I guess the theory.
0: I guess the theory is that Trump was tearing people apart. And stronger together means that we're going to be a strong country if we don't tear each other apart.
1: Yeah, I think well, it's 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 interesting because hope and change, like especially that idea of change. Right. Like, who is that going to appeal to? It's going to appeal to, um, you know, liberals. It's going to appeal to moderates. It's also going to appeal to some conservatives that just idea of, you know, changing. You know, um, you know, like we saw with Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, and you know, in the last election, that you know, my gosh, they were, they were both candidates that were really strong in that whole. We're going to shake things up. We're gonna we're gonna change stuff. Um, where stronger together is a is a much more specific liberal message. It's about um, creating some sort of togetherness. It's about creating some sort of unity, or or you know, some sort of, and it's also a message to you know the various uh populations of uh, you know underserved populations meaning you know reaching out to uh minorities reaching out to lgbt reaching out to you know all of this that whole that whole message of stronger together but does it persuade a conservative voter as much i i don't think so
0: i agree exactly and and sort of now that we're back into the whole 2015 campaign a little bit here One thing that I distinctly remember from the 2015 campaign was this Vox article where they got a lot of Obama's speech writers and and staff campaign staff together to talk about what they thought about Bernie Sanders messaging and how that compared to Obama's message. And they didn't like it. And this was really striking. I'll I'll read a quick little bit here. It was uh, from John Favreau, uh, who now hosts a, another famous podcast, (laughs) he said that, you know, during the Obama campaign, he often used to say that it's time to let the drug and insurance industries know that while they'll get a seat at the table, they don't get to buy every chair. And Favreau sort of unpacks the importance of that one. He says that it exemplifies the difference between Bernie and Obama. Bernie would never say something like that. He doesn't think insurance companies or drug companies or banks or millionaires get any seats at the table. He doesn't talk about making progress by working with Republicans or the political establishment or the business establishment. I guess, he says, I guess his plan is to build a mobilized grassroots that simply wrestles power away from those who have it. It's not just a That Obama doesn't think that that's feasible is that he doesn't think that's the right way to govern in a pluralistic democracy where everyone gets a voice. And so that sort of goes to, you know, sort of the difference between the two campaigns. Sanders' slogan is a future you can believe in. um, And they go on in the article to say that, you know, it's plastered over a dark blue background. It's nearly plagiarized from Obama's change you can believe in. And it's it's two entirely different messages, even though they sound very similar. A future you can believe in is still different from change you can believe in.
2: Yeah, I think absolutely. And one of my favorite parts of that article was at the end when Anita Dunn, one of Obama's communication directors, was saying Obama would never talk about a revolution like the way Bernie Sanders did, that Obama believed in changing from the inside and changing the institution from within.
0: Yeah. Right. And so I, 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 and so, what I wonder is, how does that speak to our political climate and the actual beliefs of the voting public now, where a message like Sanders can be so powerful? And I wonder if... A lot of Sander voters out there prefer that kind of a message of let's wrestle the power away from those who have it and let's have a revolution. How many people prefer that message over Obama's hope and change? And let's, you know, give everybody, including wealthy stakeholders, a seat at the table, but an equal seat to everybody else. What does that say about our what does that say about our political climate?
2: I think it reflects a lot of what's going on in a primary, and that these are the people that are more amped up, and they want more partisanship, and they want more disruption. And I think they might have been very frustrated with how cautious Obama was in terms of how he was handling their issues, and that they felt that they could channel their anger towards conservatives and establish much more with a candidate like Sanders. And I think that was what he was speaking to
0: it's sort of the, the opposite of Donald Trump, right? I I I've always said this a little bit is that like Bernie Sanders is is sort of the anti-Trump, right? Like Bernie hates millionaires and billionaires. Donald Trump is a billionaire. <laughs> and and so they've got very different philosophies, like exactly the opposite, and the anger is there on both sides, and I think a lot of it is very well placed on both sides. I wonder if the future of the democratic party and the future of the republican party is just more of that polarizing as opposed to obama's message of let's come together and and uh and create some change that you can believe in and come up with more moderate tones of give everybody a seat at the table
1: it's 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 quite interesting because as um as I'm hearing this and you know we talk about Obama versus Bernie like I think we can all agree that you know Bernie Sanders definitely has much more that you know revolutionary type of thing you know we're gonna we're gonna create we're gonna create that and I'm just reading through some of the word lists here that are on this on the uh, paper and uh, when we're talking about here you know of course one of the big uh, One of the big things is within unity, but it's also one of the things he talks about is the establishment. So, you know, I just want to read a couple of these words associated with establishment. okay? and these are, again, the words that were coded for this particular study that Mike was a part of. So uh, conventional, corrupt, crony, earmark, excess, greed, groupthink, Halliburton, imperial, okay, Um, institution. My opponent, old attacks, old boys clubs, old debate, old divisions, the wrong path, the wrong way, um, scam, scandal, the same old, the same failed, the same people. Like so many of these different, you know words are actually encouraging, It's being able to say, hey, you know what? this is what we don't want anymore. And so if we consider the words that Obama was actually using in his, in his speeches, in in a way he wasn't he was talking about reforming it from within, but those words are, you know, certainly very powerful words to say what is actually wrong with the system as it is. I think absolutely. I think he was
2: very much I think he was doing it on two different levels. On the one hand, he wanted to be above partisanship, but I think he was very much going after what was going on. So I think you hit it on the head well there.
0: Huh, that's interesting. And so I wonder then if Obama did such a good job in this case, maybe, maybe coding his partisanship a little bit more subtly, then how does that compare to say Donald Trump who was out there and very blatant about it? And, you know, could Obama have won in 2008 if he had been more factious as, as Trump is like, like, Barack Obama embraced the the um, you know the the thematic appeals and the morality appeals and Donald Trump seems to really lean in on the on the factious appeals
2: right I don't think so I think what they were actually both doing was going to who they were and kind of their brands and I think the one thing they shared a lot with what voters saw in them were that they were both authentic and I think with Obama, who he is, is talking inspirationally and talking about unity and coming together. And I think with who Trump is, is someone who's a fighter and likes the conflict and really likes being a like a cable news viewer who's talking to these voters. Mm. So, um, I I think the common thread is them being who they were and playing off of that.
0: So then maybe we've got Hillary Clinton then that leans in on the policy appeals. As I think about it, and I look at these these four different uh, appeals, policy, thematic, morality, and factious appeals, and I think, well, if, if one candidate is stronger in any one of these, should they just lean into that one and really embrace it? Because anything else might come off as fake. Anything else might, might seem artificial and, and inauthentic. And we have somebody who I think, I don't know, what do you think? Did Hillary Clinton really like lean into into that policy like you said before is that and then it just wasn't as effective as thematic or or sort of factious approaches
2: yeah i think it'd be interesting to look at i mean i think one thing she is accused of a lot is using identity politics and i think that would fall in the factitious appeals so i think it would be very interesting to look in their speeches and to see how much of it she was doing how much of the how much of her speeches were devoted to policy and how much of it was talking about more of these wedge type issues. I think, like I said earlier, I think at her core, she's much more comfortable talking about policies and the way to solve problems than she is about some of more of the wedge issues. But I think it'd be fascinating to look at.
1: And do we think that Hillary was as strong as Obama uh, has been in terms of the thematic appeals? No,
2: no, I think perform. I think, I think without looking at the data performance wise, she was a lot weaker and just wasn't the compelling speaker or deliverer of a message. And I think that's always been her weak spot as a candidate.
0: Now, it's interesting that you mentioned that Hillary Clinton was sort of drawn into the factious appeals like race, immigration, LGBT issues and abortion, because I think that that was true. Like she really was like she did not want to talk about those early on in the campaign in the primaries it seemed pretty apparent that she was staying away from those. And yet she was drawn into them, I think, because she had a competitive primary and she had to play to the base. And maybe that turned off some of those um, general election voters who would not have responded to more factious appeals.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think... With her, she kind of failed on both elements. She didn't do a great job of appealing to the middle. And I think there's plenty of evidence that the base didn't turn out the same way that the Obama campaign did in the Obama coalition. So I I think she had messaging problems in a lot of different areas on that front.
1: So if we go back to uh, what you all were just saying in terms of that. Donald Trump and Obama. What the voters saw in them was authenticity. That Obama's was about creating unity. Donald Trump was about creating more um, division, or at least you know reinforcing the the lines of separation. Then you know what what that says. You know to me as I, I'm reading through this is to say, well, it really doesn't. You know whether a candidate is elected or not doesn't matter exactly exactly what they say because I think that there there has been this idea out there that a person has to say exactly the right thing and if they don't say exactly that thing then they're not going to you know get elected or get traction um, so it, it doesn't so much matter ab- about that and yet when a person is being drawn into. You know, Maybe more of the factious appeals, maybe more of the uh, divisiveness, and they're just not comfortable there. Or if they need to be drawn into more of a, a unity type of um, uh, theming or maybe of a values base of a theme, and they're not comfortable there either, but that's what the environment demands – Right. Then then they're they're not going to win in that in that situation. They're not going to get traction in that situation. So it's kind of like, OK, what is the candidate already good at? What do they have as their natural strength? And then does that match up to what you know, how they need to be communicating? And so and you know given that we've talked about how this can be you know altered so much by what are the expectations of the of the other people in the primary what is the media doing what do you you know what major issues might come up it's almost a little bit like a wild card you know there there doesn't seem to be much of a playbook for this
0: yeah other than maybe stick to what you're good at i think that seems to be a lot of a lot of the themes that come out of this podcast is is find out what your candidate what your candidate's strengths are and then amplify those and try and avoid those situations where they're playing at their weaknesses.
1: Uh, Mike, in this, in this study that you all did, how did you find that that Obama was using imagery to actually draw Americans together?
2: Yeah, I think, um, I think the imagery goes back to looking at the words that he was using and i think he was very good at telling a story and it goes back to kind of the launch of his political career in the 2004 convention speech where he was talking about red america how there's not a red america and a blue america there's one america and he talks about things like we have conservative friends on little league teams and things like that where he can be as specific as possible and make it relatable to folks was really the best way he was at advancing his message so I think in our study was we just tried to find as many of the descriptions. And I, I think that would be interesting comparing to someone like Trump is I, I bet Obama used a lot of de- a lot more words in his descriptions than like Trump. who I think used imagery, but I think it was very much simple words over and over and over again was his strategy.
1: And do we think that Obama was as effective at the thematic appeals as, for example, George W. Bush was after you know nine eleven? Because if we look at the you know approval ratings of George W. Bush, right, like nine eleven happened and then his just soared, right? Like, do we think that uh, Obama was as as effective at at using imagery in that way, given that we didn't have a major you know terrorist attack?
2: I think so. I think when you look at George W. Bush, I think he had a fantastic speech writing team that was really good writings if you just read at it. And his problem was sometimes on the delivery and the oration side. But um, I think with Obama, kind of, you had a special case with someone who had great speech writers, who himself was a speech writer, and could also deliver this, a speech the way that he could and, t- and use the imagery like you were talking about.
1: So I'm wondering about, when we talk about those factious appeals you know we know that outside of as you said Mike, outside of the debates that Obama almost never focused on abortion or LGBT you know issues such as same-sex marriage and yet when we think about Obama we certainly would know that he is in favor of LGBT rights he's you know um, in favor of effectively keeping the status quo in terms of abortion, you know maybe even expanding that Why do you think that that he didn't hit on that you know more specifically, um given that 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 was his base like did those did those people already were they already gonna vote for him, you know regardless did they do you think they got drawn in more with the with the general messages and he just didn't need to go there
2: yeah, I think he they gave him a lot of trust on the left, and he got a lot of support from that side, and they kind of whether or not his words exactly matched what, how they felt on those issues, I think they trusted him on those issues in a way they might not have trusted some other candidates That's like John Kerry or Hillary Clinton. I think he had a lot of capital with them and could get their vote even if he wasn't explicitly talking about it as much.
1: Yeah, so how is it that what Obama did was different from, you know, the others in that race in terms of uh McCain Palin, right? What did what did John McCain and Sarah Palin not do or what did they do differently that just didn't um didn't strike the same chord?
2: Yeah, I think that's a fantastic question. I mean, I would love if there were studies like this so we could actually use this as a baseline to compare with other candidates and campaigns, but I I think anecdotally, looking back on 2008, the external factors were really hard for them. And so no matter what they were talking about, it was going to be very hard for them to connect. But I think there were some similarities. I mean, McCain did talk about himself as a maverick, and really tried to make the argument he was an agent of change, and that he could be different. But I think the Obama campaign was a little more successful in defining him as this continuation of the Bush administration. So it would be fascinating to look at to see if he actually was spending a lot of his time talking about things like change. It just wasn't as effective in the same way that the Obama campaign was.
0: Yeah,
1: because I when I remember hearing John McCain talk, you know, back then, it was almost as though he had changed a lot of the ways that he was that had made him successful up until that point. He was starting to communicate in a different way, probably, you know, in ways that he was being coached to communicate Um, And then, you know, how much of it is just, you know, having Sarah Palin as a running mate, which, uh, you know, might not have been the best decision in in retrospect uh, In in being able to actually do that. Um, But, you know, he he did he did do that. But, you know, it's it's amazing that McCain actually had some great, you know, thematic type of type of language that that he would use, Um, you know, and just thinking about a couple of a couple of speeches that that he was uh, he was doing. And, you know, it's just it's interesting how Obama was able to to pull it off. Um, You know, what what in terms of their communication might have just hit, you know, hit hit a lot, a lot more. So, Mike, when you think about this, this study that that was done and this was this was back in uh, September 2010 that this came out to what degree would you say what what is there what's the big lesson to learn from this like like of course one lesson is hey we need more more studies like this cuz it's really you know fantastic you know that we were able to to deconstruct it like this it's just really fascinating what would you say is the message that you know if we were just just to take this as a as an ideal what is this message for candidates or for those supporting candidates what should they get out of this
2: What they should get out of this is a lot of that when they're making their speeches, they should use a lot of different policy appeals and a lot of different thematic appeals. I think going back to the point we talked on earlier about how much thematic appeals the Obama campaign was able to use, I think in comparison that is going to be higher than other campaigns and that campaigns should be using a lot of it and that it can be very effective. I think it should also show them that they don't necessarily have to talk as much in terms of the wedge issues and that they can be very successful talking about other things.
0: Yeah, I think that's my big takeaway right there is that is that you can be successful talking about many different things from many different angles.
1: So is it, you know, would we say that, you know, because policy appeals were were the number one and, you know, like Alex was saying earlier about if you took out the the economy out of the policy appeals that effectively thematic would still be number one does do you think that this means that that there could be a situation where we just wouldn't have a policy appeal or is that kind of you know unrealistic is it always going to be the number one policy um you know issue first and then being able, you know, after that to talk about the the themes and, that you'd like for people to embrace. Because it's interesting that I actually think that Donald Trump does do uh, a number of thematic appeals. Yeah. But he, he does it in a for way sure. that talks to his base.
2: Yeah, I would argue he talks a lot about thematic appeals and his policy appeals are pretty limited and very short. But I think a lot of what he is doing is using the thematic appeals. What what do you think, Alex?
0: Oh, yeah. I I, I was going to bring this up is that, you know, Trump maybe leans on the factious appeals and a lot of the, the thematic appeals and really just like stays away from policy. If you ever get him in any situation where the media is asking him about specifically specific policy issues, he finds a way to be vague or dodge or say, we'll see. And or he'll do the opposite and just agree to everything and and sort of be uh, sort of vaguely agreeable.
2: One thing I think that would be fascinating to look at when you look at the way he talks about things would be to go back and look at all the different hyperbolic language that he uses and especially look at that compared to other people when he's talking about his cabinet members. They're the highest IQ. They're the most wonderful, that type of thing. I think that would be very fascinating if if you were studying Trump's speeches to look at his use of those kind of appeals.
1: Yeah, when Alex and I were looking at uh, Donald Trump's uh, speeches, which is our two-part episode called The Trump Show, you know, one of the first things I told Alex was, you know, I started, you know, listening to this and I was like, Alex, man, this guy is all of a sudden super motivational. You know? He he and and Alex said, um, yeah, he becomes a completely different person when he's giving these speeches to his base, when he's giving these rallies.
0: Totally and different person.
1: Yeah. And and so I, I, I definitely take your point there, Mike, in terms of needing to have an entire universe of data because How else can you really make a, you know, an educated decision about what is actually being constituted as language that's being communicated, especially if you have people who are just talking in different ways to different people, to different places, to different contexts. You know, how someone is going to talk to a reporter is wildly different than if someone just walks up to them um, and they're out just shaking hands and someone, you know, asks them a question.
0: Exactly. And I think that that's a really good point right there, is that we've got, you know, President Trump, when you see him on the news being a, a president, he talks very differently from when he's out there on the stump, giving his stump speech. Totally different person, now extremely charismatic out there, as, a, as opposed to when he's in front of the cameras, he seems hostile, closed off, angry and sulking. Now, c- contrast that to Obama where he was giving these soaring speeches and these great things uh, out on the stump. And then you get him behind the podium and he stumbles over words and he's monotone and he's very boring and and puts people to sleep. And they always called him the professor. And now you couple that with the fact that in studies show that most people don't watch the stump speeches of candidates of the other party and they don't watch the state of the union when A president of their party isn't in power there's a whole universe of people who never understood these candidates so there's a whole world of people that don't understand what's so charismatic about donald trump because they never see that and then you have a whole world of people who for those eight years didn't understand the appeal of obama and thought that you know he was a a Terrible speaker, and couldn 't understand what was so inspirational about him it 's two sides of the same coin
2: yeah it 's fascinating, I mean, I think even going back to one of the earlier things we talked about and whether or not Obama was scripted or unscripted it's i don 't even know how you would code which stuff that trump 's is scripted or not scripted because it it varies so greatly, like he can be giving a speech with a teleprompter and then go for 20 minutes on his own and it'd be entirely contradictory to what he was saying when it was scripted
1: <laughs> we actually proved it in the, in the other episode <laughs> based on based on some some things that happened i don't know how you'd code it in terms of language you're right
2: uh, and then the other thing is just his Twitter account would be fascinating because that might be the best uh, evidence of what exactly he's thinking at, and not what other
1: people are writing for him and that he might not entirely believe. That true. Mm-hmm. That too. That too. And, you know, the, the other data point that there are other data points that can happen You know, with this. It's kind of like if you were analyzing a stock and you wanted to know whether to buy a stock or not. Like you're going to look at the various indicators of performance. You're going to look at, you know, what's the market cap? Who's the managerial team? But you're also going to be looking at what's the news that just came out? What are they facing? What are the pressures or um, the the various factors that are, that are impacting that? And so, you know, I'm wondering if there would be a way to incorporate you know, even more of that data to be able to, to come up with a, um, to, to come up with a model that could, could truly, you know, give us more information about what is it that tends to happen? Uh, because ultimately, you know, we could take a bunch of these studies and come up with like the exact way to communicate to win an election, you know, the, the secret sauce, what is it? <laughs> You know? What, well you what gotta go out to
0: Pennsylvania stuff? and talk to the the voters and get them around a the table and they'll tell you the secret.
1: That's what you gotta do. <laughs> <laughs> and, sure. and they might know they might know better than than a lot of us, you know, kind of looking at it from our own um, particular vistas actually might might know, right? So the because if you just take an average voter and you ask them a question they might have heard things from from various other angles that you go, right. oh, wait, really? Where did you get that idea from?
2: Yeah, and I think that's kind of maybe a limitation of our study. I think if you were doing a comprehensive one and trying to figure out the secret sauce, you would want to be looking into some of the other ways that campaigns communicate. I think you would definitely want to look a lot into the advertising. And there are studies that go into doing content analysis of advertisements of candidates, because I think that is a way that they advance your argument that you'd want to study in that type of situation.
1: So if if someone wanted to learn more about this and the type of resource, the things that have been studied within within this uh, this arena and what makes uh, candidates successful, like what you were just mentioning, what other resources would you recommend that they check out?
2: Yeah, there's some scholars that I think are great in terms of studying political communication. Um I think definitely check out Kathleen Hall Jamison. She works at the University of Pennsylvania at the Annenberg School. She has done some of the most fantastic studies on presidential communication and she's also a pundit sometimes on PBS. So I would study her. Uh Mary Stuckey is also a great professor who has studied on a qualitative level kind of communication and speeches and rhetoric so those are two people I would definitely check out to further study this type of stuff and then the other one I guess would be kevin coe he the guy I wrote this with he does more on the presidential rhetoric side, but he he's he does the quantitative methods and he's the one who kind of has mastered this kind of methodology
0: all right that's it for today you can find mike's study in the presidential studies quarterly from 2010 and uh, we're glad that we had a chance to to really go in depth into all of this and and all the things that you've sort of seen and, and thought about ever since you know in your journeys on presidential campaigns we'll of course include links to this survey and the various articles that we talked about in the show notes so check that out and while you're in there be sure to scroll down and find the link to our Patreon. and Head on over there and see exactly what we have to offer. We've got a lot of uh, really cool levels of support in there. And along with that, some special content just for our Patreon supporters. You'll get a chance to hear some stuff that we didn't
1: talk about on the podcast and maybe learn something new. That's right. And make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And if you enjoyed the show today, make sure to give us your thoughts. Let us know what you're thinking. What is it? How did you enjoy today's episode? And what would you like to see on the show? Who would you like to see? Make sure to check out that Patreon page and we'll see you next time.